0: of the Roden Fellows, hand-picked students from six historically black colleges and universities. They're young, they're smart, and they are living one of the most unique experiences in American higher education. Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Roden, and I'm coming to you from sunny Omaha, Nebraska, home of the Midwest uh, regionals, where spring has sprung, unlike on the East Coast, where winter is alive and well. <laughs> Glad I'm here. Um just, you know, a caution to everybody just to be safe. Uh the fellows are off this week and I've got two very special guest hosts with me. Our brilliant producer, Aaron Matthewson, and Thirty for Thirty Podcast Associate Producer, Taylor Barfield. Aaron Matthews Matthewson from Howard and uh Taylor from Bowie State in Maryland. Aaron Taylor, hello there.
2: <laughs> hey Bill.
0: Hi, Bill. Um, March is Women's History Month, and we're going to be speaking with author and academician Brittany Cooper, who's just come out with a fantastic uh, new book, Eloquent Rage, A Black Feminist Discovers Her Superpower. Um, Before we speak with Professor Cooper, let's look at um, some of the biggest sports news of the week. March Madness is in full force, and the Sweet 16 is underway. And if your bracket is busted, don't worry about it. You're not alone. Mine was busted within days, within hours, actually, of the tournament beginning. I still can't believe that UMBC beat Virginia and the North Carolina and Michigan State are out. But there's a whole lot to look forward to. I mean, that's why this tournament may be one of the best things going in sports. The matchup out here in Omaha between Duke and Syracuse is going to be great. Um Last week, Ed O'Bannon predicted that Villanova was going to take the entire title. So we'll we'll see, and uh, we're going to be watching uh, Villanova and Kentucky. I'm kind of looking at Kentucky, by the way. Uh, the women's tournament typically gets a lot less attention, but it's been very dramatic. Uh, Buffalo and Central Michigan are the first mid-American conference teams to advance to the Sweet 16 since 2007. And my favorite and yours, Dawn Staley. One of the few black female coaches in the tournament uh, and her South Carolina Gamecocks are still in the running. Uh, Gino Oriema is going to lead UConn to the Sweet 16 for the 25th consecutive time. And if anyone were to dethrone the Huskies, I want it to be South Carolina, who, by the way, is a defending national champion. Uh, no HBCUs are going to be competing in the final rounds of the tournament. So the undefeated wants to remind you not to sleep on the talent at HBCUs. Uh, We rank the top 25 best HBCU athletes ever. Uh, Check out the rankings and see if you agree at TheUndefeated.com. That's TheUndefeated.com and see if you agree with The Undefeated's top 25 best HBCU athletes ever. Um, On a a very sad and and still shocking note, uh, and a personal note, um, one of the great journalists of our time, Les Payne, Uh, passed away uh, suddenly earlier this week. Les is a a mentor, is a good friend. Uh, He was a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, a a fierce and and relentless and provocative advocate for racial equality, Uh, and one of the founders of the National Association of Black Journalists. Um, Les died at his home. And uh, I know that anyone who, um, who, who knew Les and was a friend of his is still just kind of shocked at the news his presence was so large and powerful that he was one of those people. I know, you know, we all have to, to die at some point, but there's certain people you thought may, may never die. And this was one of those people. It's just hard to believe that he's gone. unless uh, his 49 year tenure as a journalist, he covered so many things. He covered a range of topics from apartheid in South Africa to the heroin industry in Turkey. It was just a, a great career, great loss. And, uh, our heart and our prayers go out to uh, to Les and and, and his family. Uh, just uh, just a, a tremendous tremendous human being. With that, we'll get back to uh, Aaron and Taylor and our guest uh, of the hour. <laughs> Joe, plan um, for the day. We'll be talking with Brittany Cooper. Uh, Brittany's second book is out called "Eloquent Rage." Eloquent Rage: A Black Feminist Discovers Her Superpower. It's just in terms of Black Panther, right, Brittany?
1: Absolutely, uh, Wakanda Forever.
0: So, um, yeah, uh, so we'll be sharing uh, some thoughts about Black women, uh, the anger black women have in 2018 and how they could channel it to help their communities uh when she's not on book tour Brittany is an associate professor of women's and gender studies and africana studies at rutgers university in new brunswick new jersey she's also the co-founder of the Crunk feminist collective blog and has been a contributor to cosmopolitan.com and salon.com her cultural commentary essays have appeared in a number of media outlets, including the New York Times, NPR, and The com. She's also the author of Beyond Respectability, The Intellectual Thought of Race and Women. Wow, she's been very, very busy. Uh, welcome to the show, Brittany. Thanks for having me. Yeah, now, thank you so much. Um, what I'm curious about, as, this, uh, as an author, uh, how did you pitch a book about angry black women and black feminism and, and was it was it a hard sell?
1: Uh it wasn't a hard sell. You know, I think that folks are trying to make sense of this political moment. Um, and mm-hmm. we're in a moment that is really a wash in white rage in particular. But I was also pitching this book uh, in the wake of what was happening in Ferguson and with the movement for black mm-hmm. lives. Uh, and there's a real desire to understand the roots of black rage and how it's driving uh, the political behavior of young black people. Uh, and so I think that this book sort of lands at the right time to help us to grapple with it, a political emotion that is sort of uh, deeply shaping our politics. Politics on all sides at this moment.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you as a follow-up. Uh, why, why is this, I mean, just from the, from the title and from the substance of the book, it seems like a, a just the perfect timing, but I was going to ask you that. Though. Why is this a perfect time for this book?
1: Well, it's a perfect time because, I mean, clearly Black Panther tells us that we need black superpowers in order to save the world. And what I want to do is help black girls and women to find their particular superpower and to think about its political usefulness. Um, I think that anger can actually be a superpower. Uh, it is one of those uh sort of forms of energy that can often cause destruction when it's not wielded well. Uh, and in my case, I often was running away from my anger, didn't know how to deal with it because I had seen it be so destructive in my own family. And my own community. And so this book was my attempt to chronicle what it looked like to own it and to talk about the encounter with a young black woman student that I had many years ago who first called me out uh, for being angry and told me that when she heard me lecture, it was like listening to the most eloquent rage ever. Um, And I was initially really defensive and told her, I'm not angry, I'm passionate. Uh, And she sort of, you know, pinned me and called me out and said, you know, you're angry, Brittany. And uh, that moment of truth helped me to grapple with the fact that she actually saw that anger as something that helped her to feel seen and heard. Um, And so maybe if I would embrace my anger, then I could be in a position to do that work in lots of other ways, too.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know how how, um, Taylor and Aaron feel, because they're younger. Uh, Aaron is a few years younger than you, and and Taylor is maybe a decade younger. but. You know, no. You, my own daughter, and you know, being around women and black women particularly. You know, women in general and black women in particular are always told to sort of be in control. Sure. You know, I mean, a- anger is a man's thing. You know, we could be, you know, you know the whole thing. We could be angry, and it's called uh, just kind of, you know, sticking. To, however, man. is, is yes, yeah, is portrayed positively. Uh, but for for women in particular- in particularly black women, that's always a thing to sort of be. You know, be in control of your sense of your of your anger and and your emotions and that kind of stuff. How do you you know continue, with mean, I'm still alive and well now.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, that's the thing, right? So much of our fraught relationship to anger and rage is about that angry black woman stereotype not wanting to be seen as illegitimate not wanting to be passed over wanting to be taken seriously but one of the things that i'm trying to argue is that acknowledging one's anger and one's rage does not mean you are not in control does not mean you are not rational or thoughtful or critical um and so part of the ability to own it, you know, is to sort of take those things that are often used against us and to say that we're going to actually harness this power. What we're not going to concede is the idea that black folks don't have the right to be angry. Um, of course, black women should be angry in a world where Donald Trump is the president, right? And not because of any of our voting behavior, uh, you understand, right? Or, you know, we've got kids getting shot up in schools all across the country and a refusal to do anything about it. You know, most of the kids that are going to public schools, more than 50% of public schools children who are mostly black and Latino um, fall below the poverty line like there are real things to be enraged about, um, real things that need to change Um, and so we have to stop using anger against women and calling them emotional and irrational for feeling angry Um, and instead this book attempts to help women to take on their anger and see it as a resource that can power a sort of, you know, a political movement that attempts to shift things
0: Did did Michelle Obama help uh, move this along um, uh, in any way because I mean she's the you know eloquent she's uh, uh, powerful strong did, did she help uh, in, in in the discussion as you lay out and the argument you lay out in your book?
1: Sure. So I have a whole chapter uh, that's about Michelle Obama and I'm trying to think very critically about her rage. So part of what happens at the beginning of her career is that she's really dismissed as being angry in 2007 when you know. Um, when it or 2000, early 2008, when it looks like Barack Obama is going to be the first to, you know, he's going to clinch the nomination, the nomination. You know, she says for the first time, I'm proud of my country. Um, and that, you know, caused people to sort of cast her as angry, unpatriotic. And so in many ways, she has to sort of shrink from that line of uh, sort of public rhetoric and becomes become a version of herself that is more safe. Um, and then I argue, though, in this book, that one of the things that she does to reclaim her right to that kind of righteous in indignation and rage uh, really happens on the day of the Trump inauguration when Michelle Obama sort of shows up to the inauguration with a kind of dress that looks nice, but it looks like she pulled out of the closet and she's rocking a ponytail. I mean, anybody that knows anything about black girls and hair knows that that is not the kind of thing that you do in your last formal official sort of job as first lady. And so I read that as a a mode of rage, as a mode of dissent, um, as her sort of saying, you know, I see what y'all are doing. I see how you're trying to sully my husband's legacy and I'm not here for it. Um, So I think that her negotiations of anger in the public sphere are very interesting. But I also think that one of the challenges she faces is that because she's the first lady, she really does have to kind of, you know, she has to engage in respectability politics in a way that many black women are not saddled with at the same level. And one of the things that I'm trying to work through is this idea that it's hard to be both respectable and angry very publicly at the same time. Typically, if you're being respectable, you're managing your rage. You're trying to not let it right. seep out or contaminate anything. I um, mean, I'm really saying, well, what happens if we actually do the flip side, right? And we own the rage. Part of what it means is that we have to have a really different relationship
3: to this performance of respectability. Well, Br- Brittany, it's um, such a pleasure to have you here. Um, I have been—I don't know if you know this, Bill—I have been listening to Brittany speak for a very long time. <laughs> It's, and it's I've always since the Howard been, days. Since the Howard days, she used to be. Uh, we used to be in the uh, honors office at uh, at Howard, and she and some of her friends would just talk about any issue. Like you could just like say a word, and they could go off, and I would learn so much. So this is pretty cool. Um, but I think you yeah, know, I, I did know
0: that by the way.
3: Oh, <laughs> and you know, I write about the honors office in this book. Um, yeah. yeah.
1: So I'm glad you know you can verify that it was as epic as I felt like it was.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the title of your book is Eloquent Rage, but I feel like you talk a lot about vulnerability. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned your friendships. Some of them went well. Some of them didn't. Mm-hmm. Romantic relationships, your relationship with your father and your mother. How was it to kind of put all of that on paper? And, and is it weird? You know, I'm sure there are some people who know you and don't know all that stuff about you. Sure.
1: Um, you know, because black girls, you know, try to protect their business. So I'm having to think about what it means that I told so much of my business in this book. Uh, but one of the things that I wanted to, to do was to say, asking black women to claim rage I'm not actually asking them to um, inhabit a stereotype and the way to get out of that is by owning all of the other parts that go with it so that you read the story and you know oh well this is why she's mad as hell right there's a a, she's been through things that justify and legitimate that position but also that I want folks to see that rage is just one emotional register in which black women move but that there are so many others and we live in a country that is so and and deal culturally with um, folks who are really unable to hold um, a range of black women's emotions joy, sadness, distress anguish, anguish, vulnerability Um, all of these things are part of what it means to be human in general Um, and even though I'm I'm sort of skeptical of like projects that try to humanize people, I'm not trying to humanize black women, I sort of work from the premise that we're already human Um, but I do think that it is important to take off the the strong black woman mask that performance and really say, this is what it looks like to live very personally at the intersections of all of these big systems like capitalism and racism and sexism. Um, And it can be really hard, but there can also be sort of very funny moments, um, joyous, joyous moments um, in the midst of the heartbreaking
2: moments.
0: Uh, We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, Aaron Taylor and I will continue our discussion with Brittany Cooper, Author of Eloquent Rage, a black feminist discovers her superpower. In case you are just now tuning in. You're listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows podcast. I'm on the line with my guest co-host, Aaron Mathewson and Taylor Barfield. Uh, The Fellows are off this week. We're speaking with Brittany Cooper, author of the new book, Eloquent Rage, A Black Feminist Discovers Her Superpower.
2: So, Brittany, um, my name is Taylor Barford. I actually went to Bowie State, and one cool. of the questions that... I So, I grew up, I guess, growing in a predominantly white area, mm-hmm. and one of the things that I was always faced with was, this doesn't look like the real world. Mm. And I found myself going through this awakening, if you will, in college, where I took a time to realize that most of the stuff that I experienced growing up was actually racist.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> and... <laughs> I just I'm just curious like what advice do you have just for those students that are going through their awakening and maybe experiencing rage that's not so eloquent yet? <laughs> yeah. Um
1: what I want to say to them is that they have the right to be in process. Um, you don't have to have it all figured out. Look, I was a hot mess uh, at 17, and even even while I was at Howard, you know, I was a hothead, and I would get mad at professor Aaron probably didn't see it, but I would get mad at professors. I would storm out of class. I, you know, I was really not comfortable with rage, um, but I also had those sort of encounters um, in high school, because one a weird thing happened where I had all these white friends because I was in these classes, and they were my friends until it turned out that I was going to be the valedictorian of the class and then everybody showed out really bad. Um, You know, my senior year was miserable. Um, And so what I want to just sort of affirm is that, you know, that period, it can be very isolating. You can feel really misunderstood and also deeply conflicted because these are people who do racist things, but but there are other things that you really like about them. And so in that moment of my life, Like my friends, racism didn't mean that we weren't friends. And I think sometimes we don't own that black kids have to navigate in a more complicated way. They can't just throw everybody away. So I think that you have to recognize that it's okay to stay connected to folks, to try to have human levels of connection and have your political critique. Um, But also to know that, there is life beyond high school and it is hard. High school was terrible, like wonderful and terrible all at the same time. Um, but what you fight for is that there, there is a moment beyond it where you get to define yourself for yourself. And that's the place that you're trying to get to, but it's okay if it's messy and it feels really terrible. Um, that's the thing that I remember. I actually remember my senior year feeling really terrible, and I remember Howard feeling like an oasis an oasis um but i also I want to be like I think I love that's why I love black colleges, but even if you don't go to a black college, what I love about colleges is an opportunity to find your people. and what I would say to any kid who is struggling is just know that many times you don't find your people in high school. It takes you a while to find them, but if you keep looking, you will find them.
0: Our guest is Brittany Cooper. Uh, her second book is out this week, and it's called Eloquent Rage, A Black Feminist Discovers Her Superpower. But I, I, I just, I mean, I, I, you say so many things that are, I would love to be in those offices how Even though I went to Morgan, by the way. Oh,
1: Lord. I, yeah, yeah, oh, Lord
0: yeah, well, that's what I mean. I you, Howard, oh, Lord. But, <laughs> I mean, look, it's all HBCU
1: love and mixed company. We're going to behave. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, by, by the way, this was my question. Did, have you had a chance to see the, uh, Tell Them We Are Rising? Uh, the,
1: uh, oh, I no, I didn't. I, I haven't seen it. I heard about it, and I'm really looking forward to watching it.
0: Okay, well, we'll have you back on, because I'd love to get your take on it. But, you know, you, you bring up Venus and Serena mm-hmm. uh, and the way that they've honed uh, their power. And it's fun, you know, I, I tell people that you know when Verita, when serena went off on the, on the line judge yes. a few years ago yes and she just said i thought it was one of the classic moments in all of sports mm. and i've been covering it for like 30 something years And when she went off on her i said you know every brother in america has seen that expression at some <laughs> point in time you know but i just thought it was so classic but well, you bring up venus and Serena. And the way they 've honed their power to dominate the court, well, what do you think about the way they've participated in discussions about um, you know racism, uh, police brutality, sexual violence, harassment um, well, yeah, hey that 's my right, first point. What do you think about the way they 've handled?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, look, let me tell you something. I love Venus and Serena um like most black folks do, but I love them cuz I grew up watching tennis before they were really on the scene with my mom and so, you know, I grew up watching Jimmy Connors and Monica Seles and, you know, Steffi Graf, right, and Andre Agassi and uh, Pete Sampras. So, cuz sometimes folks are like, "You only watch tennis cuz of the Williams sisters." And it's like, "No, I'm actually a long-time tennis fan, but um but I also love them because it was cool to see the way that they actually came in and changed the game." Um I actually appreciate that at the very beginning of their career, they were less political. Um, They often sort of, you know, said this thing about, you know, we're Americans first. Um, and it was their way right. of kind of trying to navigate being black girls and, and, and not having crossed over into a certain level of popularity. But what I love is that it, at the moment that they really felt like they had the power in the game, they actually then used the power to defend causes. So you saw Venus really advocating for and shifting the culture around women getting equal pay. Um, and then you saw Serena, you know, coming out very hard um, to support um, the movement for black lives and talking about police Mm -hmm. brutality. Um, And even, you know, the choice to sort of go back to Indian Wells and to, to sort of call out and confront the racism they've experienced there. So I think that what I like is that at the beginning, I was less impressed, you know, if you think about them in the early two thousands with their sort of political takes on things. But these days, I think that they have really, Matured and stepped into the role, and seen that they that there's a power that they have that's unparalleled. We've literally never seen tennis stars like them before, and even the new sisters coming up in the game, you know, they they're not quite there yet. Um, and so they're using the power in the way that you would hope that elder stateswomen would in a
3: sport.
0: What about and remember her her father? uh, Sorry, her father, their their father, was really carrying that flag for the first, you know. Ten years sure. just so they would have to you know I mean he was clearly drawing the fire and uh, and I thought he was great. I think I thought he in, in that respect he, he did a great job of you know doing those things so they wouldn't have to like you said so they could mature into that uh, role. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Aaron, you had
3: something uh, what do you think about uh, Malcolm Jenkins and Kaepernick and and the way those guys have been protesting? Do you feel like it's been inclusive of black women and or do you like what they've been doing? Um, I'm particularly impressed with
1: um, Colin Kaepernick, not because it's not just about the on the field protests, but it's that his strategy off the field. He's been funding sort of, you know, um, particularly like sort of small movement kind of um, organizations and local organizations um, and has given away a good deal of money and has done so in ways that are absolutely gender inclusive. So I support that. I think. You know, I support protests because I think that that protest is inspired by the movement for black lives. And since the movement for black lives really comes out of black women's organizing, I'm here for um, any any sort of protest work that does that. But I, you know, but I also like that there's been an off the field component and that excites me. I, you know, I think that the movement for black lives continues to get a bad rap because folks think that there is no strategy beyond protest. But if you look in every facet, there's so many more strategies beyond protest for everyone who has participated, whether it's getting D.A.s out of office in some key cities uh, like Philadelphia, um, like Cleveland, um, right where uh, and like Chicago um, or, you know, again, using money to fund these sort of local organizations.
2: Yeah. So, uh, who do you draw your inspiration from when you're telling these stories? Yeah. I mean, look, um, I'm a sort of real regular black girl. So like I said,
1: this book is a dedication to my mama and my aunties and my grandmother. So I think them, um, but I also think I come out of a really long tradition of black feminist storytellers. Um, and so the women that I write about in my academic book, you know, they sort of show up here too in different forms. So Anna Julia Cooper and Polly Murray. Um, I like to think of myself in the crunk tradition of Ida B. Wells. Um, um, you know but I'm also trying to be in conversation with young feminists right like Kim Foster like Morgan Jerkins like um, Morgan Parker who is a an dope and amazing poet and even like my peer and colleague um, Roxanne Gay um, so you know I, I feel like what we need in this moment is a chorus of voices and I feel like when I look at our ancestral legacies, these women always worked together. They rolled as a crew. There were always a lot of them at a given moment. Um, so I sort of try to reject the singularity narrative and say that I'm both inspired by crews in the past and trying to sort of roll with a dope ass crew now.
0: You know, that's such a great point. I, I was going to ask you, that's such a great point. Uh, not only about the black women you mentioned, but black folks in general, I think there's a tendency, particularly now for us to deal with either or, Yeah. you know, um, uh, you're either kind of down with this, or you're kind of down with that, and I think that um, you know that we we have to operate on so many multiple levels of discourse that it's just kind of disappointing to see us openly engage in these kind of battles, whether it's Cornell and um, you know uh, Miles Tannahasi or or Skip. I mean, you know, it, it just seems sort of ridiculous that that. We feel that it has to be an either or approach. My only thing is just don't just don't be an Uncle Tom, just don't, you know, just don't tell her what <laughs> I'm escaping. But yeah. uh, outside, it just seems like we have to have a, a collective approach, uh, an intellectual collective, uh, collective approach.
1: Yeah. You know, one of the things that I think we actually need to say if we think about these sort of dust ups that happen um, very cyclically with black male intellectuals is that it's incredibly masculinist. This, you know, and the lack of empathy, the lack of care and the lack of like just conceding that. We can love we can all say that we love black people and that we want black people to get free and still have very different ideas about how that needs to happen. And I find that black men really struggle to do that in a productive way in the public sphere. And that's been true, uh you know, since the Du Bois Washington debates. I mean, it's an it's an old problem, not a not a new problem. And, I, you know, and I'm hoping to be part of a generation of black women intellectuals that gets this right, that says that more voices, not less, um, will actually help us to be better. Um, I'm not interested at all in having big battles and debates with black women in the public sphere. And that doesn't mean that I'm not interested in intellectual debates that move the culture forward and that move our politics forward, because I think that sisters should be in those conversations as well. But I am interested in saying that I do that. I think that what it means to be a black feminist is to have a different model. And that model is not about eating the other. It's not about killing your mama, you know, or, you know, it's not edible in any way. Right. You don't have to slay the patriarch in order to say something like we can all come and sit around the table. And the thing is, we all know what happens when black people sit around the table, particularly if liquor is flowing like it's a loud, raucous, engaged debate. Um, But we can also walk away with our humanity intact, and that's what I hope, like, that's, to me, what a black feminist model of public intellectual work and debate looks like.
0: One of the things that particularly vexes me, uh, and and I've been on a lot of panels with a lot of white women administrators and all that, and whenever I bring up this idea, this tension or, or gap between black and white women, I'm saying, you know, you guys aren't even at first base yet. I mean, you you know, if you look at the athletic sphere, some of the same power dynamics are emerging there with white women in the middle of control and power and black women on the periphery. You know, and I know this argument goes back to the 19th century, but it, it just blows me away that invariably white women won't even deal with it. We'll either deal with the you know, the gender side of you, but we're not going to deal with the racial side of you because that means we got to deal with Malcolm and David and John. We ain't dealing with that. What, what do you make of that? And have you seen progress there? Because it just really fascinates me about the, um, it's almost a, 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 a deniability.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, white women's journey is that that they have to go on and that they have to commit to uh is that they see freedom. The Freedom Project is having the kind of um, freedom and power that white men have um, rather than actually trying to work with black women and other women of color to for for all women to be free. Um Look, I also think black men have that same problem, which is that they see their Freedom Project is trying to be to get what white men have, which is why we don't see in black men's politics as sort of looking out for black women. Either. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I, look, I think that there's real reasons for distrust between black and white women. And I think, like, one of the things the Trump election taught me about white women for a long time, white feminists have said, you know, the reason why black women don't want to be feminists is because they're so race first. They put race before everything. And the thing Trump taught us is that white women also put race first. Right. That they voted for a party and the candidate that has admitted to being sexually violent with women. A party that it's at the level of policy hates uh, women if you think about you know not only reproductive justice right but also even it's healthcare policies all of those things um, and yet they voted their racial interest um, and their investments in white supremacy and white power over any kind of gender interest and so time is out for white women saying that it's black women who think like that because it's very clear that black women are thinking far more robustly at the intersections than we're given credit for um, so yeah I you know I think we need to call white women out for many things Things, but one of the things is that white women need to realize that their racial politics drive their voting because white women have the opportunity to have a president in their own image in Hillary Clinton, and they did some Mean Girl, we're just gonna you know roll for our brothers kind of thing. It is, I mean. That is also white nationalism if we, if black people were doing that, we would say that that was black nationalism. that is what white nationalist white nationalism looks like from white women um and I think we have every right to sort of be skeptical, disappointed, and even a bit afraid if white women don't change this voting behavior uh going into twenty eighteen and twenty twenty so your
2: thoughts just have me thinking about Tarana Burke, yeah, and her uh she she's founded the me too movement, yeah, and a lot of White feminists have taken that Me Too movement and made it into something that almost doesn't include Tarana anymore. Like, there's mm. a lot of movies that are coming out that are um, telling the story about the Me Too movement and uh, the experience in Hollywood and everything. And I'm curious about how, how do women channel that? Like, that rage? Like, how, how, how do you feel about the way she's handling? this movement.
1: Yeah, you know, look, um I mean, I think Tirana deserves all the accolades. Um I know her. I'm very proud um, of this work uh, that she's doing. And, and and I feel really conflicted because one of the things I think that the Me Too moment teaches us um beyond sort of the movement that it's becoming um, is that if powerful, rich, beautiful white women are also being this subjected to violence, that that should be our clearest signal of how pervasive patriarchy is, that power and money and beauty can't is no protector. And so then I think if we look from that vantage point, then we can say, well, what is happening with poor women? What is happening with women of color who don't have that kind of power and privilege at their disposal? Um, I think you're absolutely right to be skeptical of the ways that white women's impulse is a colonizing impulse to sort of come upon land that is already inhabited and say we discovered it, right? To, to Columbus, to colonize um, this movement. And I think that black women have to continue to use the tools that we have to fight back. The same tools that really reminded everyone that Toronto was at the center of this are, are tools, you know, social media tools and advocacy tools in that way. Um, so I'm hopeful that that will happen. But let me tell you what, what I actually want more. I want Tarana to get all of the credit that she deserves but what I want more than that is for black communities to actually get fully on board with Me Too. We need to have this reckoning in business and academe In entertainment, we ain't called out all these black male entertainers who we know are terrible and trifling. R. Kelly still has a career. The, the calls to boycott him, even with the context of Me Too, still haven't caught on. And so I think that one of the ways that Tarana's legacy will be cemented and that black women's, from Rosa Parks forward, right, anti, history of anti-rape activism will be cemented is for black folks to actually Think about what it looks like for us to have this reckoning in our community. And we're slow because I think we recognize that to really do this is it it will be costly. The few stories we have seen, some of them, like in academia and activist circles, have been personally quite disappointing because they're brothers that I know um, and respected until these stories came out. And so I think that we are bracing ourselves for the impact and the hurt, but we still got to have the conversation. But
0: Brittany, you're so so right, I guess, is... uh and Brittany Cooper. Her second book is out this week. It's called Eloquent Rage, A Black Feminist Discovers Her Superpower. And I think you make such a great point. I know you got to go. You make such a great point about black men in particular. Uh, you know, we've got we really got to look in the mirror um, and do a lot of deep, deep, deep soul searching from our music to uh, stuff that we just say and don't uh, and, you know, I don't really acknowledge I mean, you, you're really right uh, to use a sports metaphor we really got to get our own teams our own locker rooms together yeah. uh, but but you, you've been really great and I uh, can't tell you how much we appreciate you uh, coming on the show but thank you so much and uh, good luck with the tour good luck with the book and um, I hope you come back and uh, talk with us again.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Uh, you're, you're the best. That's all the time we have for today if there's Anything you'd like us to cover, or if you just want to leave us a comment, tweet us at the undefeated. hashtag RodenFellows. You can also email us at RodenFellows at gmail.com. That's RodenFellows at gmail.com. Take care. Thanks for listening to HPCU 468, the Roden Fellows podcast. This show is produced by Aaron Matheson. Get all of the HBCU 468 podcasts as well as All Day. What are those? And Morning Roast by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another HBCU podcast. And don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a great week, everybody.